guests, and we always welcome you. We hope you'll be blessed by being here tonight. There are a lot of important questions that faces every serious and sober-minded American citizen. We wonder how much longer our nation can survive in light of our tremendous indebtedness. We owe $22 trillion plus. And so we wonder how in the world can we keep on without taxing our people to death to pay our national debt. Another important question that we face is, what about cancer's future? We made a lot of strides in the right direction, a lot of success, but still the word cancer scares the life out of us. Will we ever have a, a sure enough cure, total cure for cancer? What about AIDS? And again, we've made progress, but still it's a scary thing. And then we wonder, will there be another third world war? We have people like Iran, who say they're close to a nuclear weapon. North Vietnam has one. Many people in, our, in the world have nuclear weapons. If we ever had another war, can you imagine the devastation? And so what would happen? Important questions, serious, serious questions. But the one I'm about to share with you tonight is the most important question of all. And that's the question, what must I do to be saved? And I believe that it's, it's a question that folks have sought an answer to for many, many years in many different places, all times and climes. People have tried to find out how to be saved. I think it's why Molech, the uh, fire god, was created by the Moabites. The old fire god, Chemosh, or Molech, had the body of a man, had the head of a bull, had outstretched arms. He was hollow on the inside. They kept constant fires burning inside of him. And the people of Moloch would take their little babies and lay them out on the outstretched arms of Moloch, or the fire god, offer their own children as a sacrifice. Why do you think they did that? They were trying to appease their god. And then in the years past, the women of uh, India would take, take their little babies and throw them in the Ganges River, drown their babies, trying to appease their gods. Always people have tried to find an answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? How can we please God? And so tonight we're going to, we're going to investigate that question. We're going to try to find an answer from God's Word, and I think I can make it as clear as it can possibly be seen. And I hope tonight with all my heart, when you leave here, if anybody were to ask you, what must I do to be saved, you could very quickly tell them, this is what God says. And so we'll talk about what must I do to be saved. The first thing I want to do is just kind of analyze the question. We start with the word what. That means when he said, what must I do to be saved? That that indicates that something had to be done. He knew something had to be done. He asked, what must I do? And when he said, what must I do? He didn't say, what may I do? What might I do? What can I do? He said, what must I do? Indicating to me that whatever the answer was, he knew that it would be absolutely essential. It was mandatory. It was obligatory if he were going to be saved. So he asked, what must I do? Then he said, what must I do? He didn't say, what about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He didn't say, what about the thief on the cross? He didn't say, what about my uh, friends down the street who supposedly experienced deathbed repentance five minutes before he died? Nothing wrong with asking about those questions, but if you ask those questions as a cover-up, as something to hide behind to keep from facing your own responsibility, then something's wrong with it. So he asked, what must I do? And then that question is, what must I do? I can almost hear somebody say, you know, Wayne, you don't have to do anything. Salvation's a free gift. You don't do a thing. God gives you salvation. 
Well, this man knew a lot more than some of our theologians, folks. He asked, what must I do? You know, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. In Luke 6, 46, he said, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? James said in James 1, 22, And be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And you remember what Jesus said in the great Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. He said, uh, the wise man, he talked about a wise man who uh, built his house on a rock. He said, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them shall be likened unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. But whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And great was the fall of it. And so my friends, when the Bible says that there's something to be done, he asks, what must I do? We do have to react. We have to respond to whatever this uh, answer is. Then he asks, what must I do to be saved? And I would say to you that the scariest word, one of the scariest words in the English language is a little four-letter word, L-O-S-T, lost. Have you ever been lost? I mean, really, really lost? Maybe some of your hunters and you have uh, been out in the woods and on a hunting trip and you got lost. I did that back several years ago. I uh, lived in Battersonville, Kentucky, and one night a friend of mine, James Allen, on a Wednesday night said, would you like to go hunting on Friday morning? I said, yeah, I'd love to. So he asked another friend, Lloyd Pritchard, he said, Lloyd, you want to go hunting with Wayne and me? So we all agreed that we would meet. So he picked us up at dark, 5 o'clock in the morning, and drove us out about 20 miles outside of Madisonville. And as we were driving down the road, uh, it was still dark, but we could see the silhouette of trees over on the right. And he began to explain the woods to us. And he said, now this woods is a long, narrow woods. It runs along the road here, but it's about maybe 100 to 200 yards across, but it runs along the road. He said, you couldn't get lost because uh, it's just a narrow, narrow woods. So he let us out, and we all made our way out into the woods and I found a tree that I thought might look promising, and I sat down under it, and I waited for the squirrels to come to me. But they knew that I was out there. They heard about the great white hunter, and they, you know, they said, avoid the tree. And so I sat there for a while. Daylight came, and I waited, and I waited, and I didn't hear anything and see nothing. So I got up, and I started walking. And uh, I, I walked for quite a ways. And then it was getting close to time to go to the car, so... I started in the direction where I thought the car was. But I walked a long ways. I wasn't getting out of the woods. So I thought, you know, I must be walking the length of it. So I did, a, you know, one of these kind, turned and walked that way. I walked a long ways, and I wasn't getting out of the woods. I turned every direction I knew, and I walked and I walked. Now, I wasn't getting scared, but I couldn't convince my feet. Because I kept walking faster and faster and faster. Bushes were hitting me in the face and scratching me up, but I was in a hurry to get out of the woods. I thought, you know, maybe when I don't show up to church on Sunday, they'll come and look for us, maybe by that time. But anyway, we were lost. So I kept walking and walking. And finally, after a while, I saw some daylight out from the woods. And I walked out there, and surely enough, there was the road you talk about a happy camper. I was happy to see it. Then I, I couldn't decide, am I above the car or below the car? 
So I started walking in one direction. I thought, this doesn't feel right, doesn't look right. I don't know why it would look right. It was pitch dark when I got there. But anyway, I turned around walked the other way. And you talk about a beautiful sight when I spotted that car. Being lost is not fun. I was the first one back to the car. After a little while, I guess another 30 minutes or so, James Allen, the fellow who told us that the woods is narrow, showed up, red-faced. He said, did you kill anything? I said, time. I wanted to shoot him. <laughs> I, my, my finger got real itchy on the trigger there for a time or two, but, but I, I said, no, I haven't even seen anything. He said, well, I hadn't either. And then after a few moments, he said, I've been lost all morning. And then he asked, he said, have you seen Lloyd? I said, I haven't seen Lloyd since we let him out of the car. He said, you think we ought to go out there and look for him? I said, I'm not going back in that woods if Lloyd never comes out. I'll shoot my gun up in the air, but I am not going back in those woods. And then a few more minutes passed, and a car drove up, and Lloyd got out of the car. He was so lost, he paid a guy to bring him back to the car. And we laugh about that now, but I still remember the terror that I felt that morning because no matter which way I walked, it seemed that I was lost. Recently in Birmingham, a little three-year-old girl was kidnapped from a birthday party. And her picture was in the newspaper, on television, on Facebook. We saw her picture regularly. Prayers were prayed. Uh, they offered uh, to pay, you know, a ransom for this little girl to be returned, three years old. About a week passed, nothing was heard from her, and then finally word came, the little girl had been killed. Can you imagine the terror of that little girl separated from her parents, and finally her life snuffed out, lost? That's a scary word. And so this man asked, what must I do to be saved? Now, folks, I want to tell you that there are several things that I will mention to you tonight, but the first is this, and that is we need to be reminded of how much God loves us. You need to know that God paid the ultimate price for your salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved us so much that his son died for us. And Romans 5, 8 says, God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus loved us, and John 15, 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve and to give my life. A ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28. In Matthew 26, 28, he said, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Do you know how much God loves you? When I talk about what must I do to be saved, I just want you to know God has done everything to make it easier as possible for you to become a child of his. He loves you. He wants you saved. God says he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so he wants you to be saved. And I hope you tonight, when we think about what we have to do, I hope you just keep thinking, God loves me. God wants me saved. Last night I talked about the mercy of God. And don't ever forget that God's eyes are always watching you because he can't take them off of you. So remember how much he loves you. Now I'm going to tell you four things that I think we need to do in order to be saved. And the first thing is this, we have to recognize that we're sinners. 
You're not going to ever get a person to respond to the invitation until he knows that he's a sinner. If you can imagine, maybe here's a fellow out swimming, and you try to throw him a life preserver. If he's a good swimmer and he doesn't feel lost, he's not going to reach for it. But if he's drowning, he'll do his best to grab it, won't he? And so you have to know you're lost. And here's what the Bible says. If you go back uh, to Luke chapter 5, there's a story there about Jesus teaching on the Lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. And the crowd is crowding in on him so much that he asked Peter to cast the boat out a little bit from the land, and there he teaches them. And then when he finishes, he said to Peter, cast your net out into the deep and let it down for a draft or for a catch. And so Peter began to, began to make excuses. He said, Lord, we fished all night. We didn't catch anything. And nighttime was the time to fish on the lake of Gennesaret because the daytime, the boat cast a shadow and the water was so clear that the fish would run away. And so he said, we fished at the right time and we didn't catch a thing. And then I, maybe he paused. Maybe he waited for Jesus to say, well, that's all right. Let's just go on back to shore. But then he finally said, but nevertheless, that's your word, we will. And so he cast his net out and he began to drag it in. And it was so filled with fishes that he had to call his partners to come and help him. They nearly loaded the boat down, almost sank the boats. But here's the statement he made. He said, depart from me. For I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. I think he was saying, Lord, I doubted you knew what you were talking about. I doubted that you knew anything about fishing. I, I forgot all about the miracles that you have performed that I've seen. And then he just falls to his knees and says, Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. And when they got those boats back to the land, Jesus said, Fear not, from henceforth you'll catch men. And the Bible says they left their boats and followed him. They had the best catch they had probably ever made in their entire lives. Peter was probably thinking, now I can move my mother-in-law out of my house, don't you think? He's probably thinking, boy, I can get me a brand new chariot. I mean, I've got all these fishes now, but you know what? As far as we know, it just said they left their boats and followed him. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. You remember in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah in chapter 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. He then describes something like an earthquake that shook the temple and filled it with smoke. And then he said, I saw the burning ones, the seraphim. He said they had six wings. With twain they covered their face, with twain they covered their feet, and with twain they did fly. And then he said, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And you know who he saw then? Himself. And he said, oh, woe is me. For I am undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I'm a sinner, he said. And so we need to realize we're sinners. The Bible said there's none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 10 and 23. John said in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have not sinned, we condemn our, we uh, deceive ourselves, and the truth's not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us, in verse 10. In 1 John 2 and 1, he says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. But he knew he would, so he said, If any man sins, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let me tell you something I know about everybody in this room who's reached the age of accountability. Every single one of us in this room is a sinner. Every single one. I was preaching in Houston many years ago, and I said something like this, that there's no none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. 
Uh, the Bible says the whole world life in wickedness, and I was quoting those kind of verses. And I said, everyone in here is a sinner. And after church, a fellow came up to me, and he said, I disagree with what you said tonight. And I said, okay, what did I say that you disagreed with? He said, you said everybody in the room is a sinner. And he said, I'll have you know that I'm not a sinner. I'm not a sinner. I said, oh. He said, that's right. He said, I'm forgiven. I'm saved. I said, well, let me ask you this. Do you pray every day? He said, yes, I do. I said, in your prayers, do you ever say, Father, forgive me my sins? He said, yeah. I said, why would you do that if you're not a sinner? We're all sinners. Now, sinners are divided into two groups. They're saved sinners and lost sinners. But the best you can say is, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I didn't earn it. didn't merit it. He just gave me salvation. And so I'm a sinner saved by grace. And so we're all sinners, folks. We have to recognize that. I heard about a fellow who responded during a revival. A whole bunch of people responded. And the minister was going down the line asking people how he could help them spiritually. He came to this one guy who said, I don't have any sins myself. I've come to pray for the church. Wouldn't you like to live next door to that old bird? I don't have any sins myself. I've come to pray for the church. Another woman said this. She said, I'm satisfied with myself. Well, you can say more than Paul could say. Paul said, I buffet my body and I bring it into subjection. Lest there be any means after I preach to others, I myself should become a castaway. We have to always remember, let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. And so you have to be careful, folks. And realize if you're going to go to heaven, if you're going to be saved eternally, you've got to know, first of all, I'm a sinner. I need salvation. Here's the second thing that I would suggest to you, and I talked about it Sunday morning, and that is humility. We have to be humble if we're going to be saved. The Bible teaches us that God hates pride. He resisteth the proud, giveth grace to the humble. We have to be humble enough to realize that we are sinners and that we do need God, and we need to confess faults to each other. We need to be that kind of humble. And if you think you're so good and so proud that you don't need to confess sins, then you're in trouble. And so we have to be humble. Here's a third thing that I would suggest to you if we answer the question, what must I do to be saved? We have to make sacrifices. It's going to cost you to be a Christian. I think sometimes in our zeal to get you to become a child of God, we make it sound too easy. And that's why we have a lot of people who are church members who are never really saved. They just joined the church. They just got on the list. And so I'm going to tell you, it will cost you to be a Christian. You remember in Matthew 19, the Bible says a young man came running up to Jesus and he said, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Well, keep the commandments. And so he wanted to know what commandments. He said, Well, keep the commandments, he said. And so he began to enumerate some of them. And the man said, I have kept all of those ever since I was a boy. What do I lack yet? Jesus said to him, go sell what you have and give to the poor and come follow me. And the Bible says, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He would not make the sacrifice. Have you ever thought, you don't know his name. He's called, we call him the rich young ruler. We don't know his name. You know, if that young man had said, Lord, I'll go and give everything I have away and I'll come back and follow you. I think Jesus maybe would have said to him, it's not necessary for you to do that. I just wanted to know if you were willing. We might know his name like we know Timothy or Titus or Barnabas. He might have even written a book of the Bible 
if he had made the sacrifice, but as it is, he went away sorrowful. He had great possessions. What do you think happened to them? When he died, they were all gone. What do you think happened to his soul? He was lost eternally. He would not make the sacrifice. And so I would say to you then tonight, if you want to be a Christian, it's going to cost you. It'll cost you time. If you want to be a child of God, you're going to have to spend time in the kingdom, working for the Lord. You'll you'll spend time not only in worship, but hopefully you'll spend time uh, talking to people about their souls, inviting people to come to worship God with you. It'll cost you time. It'll cost you tears. There'll be times when you'll weep over those who are lost. You will weep over people that are going through tough times. You'll visit hospitals. It'll cost you time. It'll cost you energy. And it'll also cost you money. If you're a child of God, I believe with all of my heart you ought to give at least a tenth of your income. At least a tenth. Now you know somebody says, Wayne, the New Testament does not teach tithing. You know in the New Testament, it just says as a man a purpose in his heart, let him give. Uh, not of necessity or not grudgingly. But let me ask you this. Is it true you think the Bible teaches by direct command, approved apostolic example, necessary inference? We say that. That's a hermeneutic. That's the way the Bible teaches, we say. Now, if that's the case, let me ask you this. Where's the command? Where's the example? Where's the inference that any New Testament Christian gave less as a Christian than he gave as a Jew? Where is it? I know the Bible says this, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so I will say to you, then it'll cost you, it'll cost you money. Now the average Christian, I'm told, gives about a third, uh, uh, instead of a tenth, gives uh, about 3%, rather, 3%. You couldn't be a good Jew and give 3%. You couldn't be a good Seventh-day Adventist and give 3%. But somehow or the other, we've convinced ourselves that since the Bible didn't say specifically to give a tenth, that we can give a lot less. Do you not agree that the New Testament is far superior than the Old Testament law? We live under grace, and that better than living under law? And then why would we turn around with greater blessings, with greater freedoms, with grace, turn around and do less than they did under law? You ask, answer me that. I'll tell you something else, folks, while I'm on it. And I love to talk about money. Uh, everyone, you know, sometimes when preachers preach about giving, they almost choke. You know, they'll say, oh, today I'm going to preach about... <clears throat> well, actually, the elders asked me to talk about this. <clears throat> so today I'm going to talk about... Well, actually, we don't need it here. You know, y'all are very generous. And so we just about choke getting around to it. But I just love to say, we're talking about money. Ushers, block the doors. Anybody tries to go out, keep their purse or take their wallet. And you know why I do that? I'll tell you why, folks. Because I learned a long time ago, the more you give, the more you get. You know that. The Bible says, give and you shall get. Good measure pressed down, shaken together and overflowing, shall men give into your bosom for what measure you meet. It shall be measured to you again. I'm your best friend when I tell you to give generously and the Lord will bless you generously. I believe that with all my heart. And so it'll cost you money. It will, but it'll pay off. So I just want you to know up front, you're going to have to make sacrifices if you become a child of God. You will have to give a lot of time and effort and energy and prayer and tears. But it's worth it. It is so worth it. 
you'll have an abundant entrance one day into heaven. It'll be the greatest decision you've ever made in your life. And the happiest people on the planet are those who've given their lives to Christ. I wouldn't exchange place with, places with I don't care who he is. I'd rather be a Christian than president, that's for sure. And so I'm telling you it's the greatest life in the world. It's worth whatever sacrifice you make because it pays the greatest dividends in this life and in the life to come. I, I believe that with all my heart. Now then, one more thing we have to do in order to answer this question. We must, number four, receive Christ Jesus the Lord. And I can almost hear somebody say, Wayne, where do you get language like that? I'm glad you asked. Right out of the Bible. Jesus came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. John 1, 11 and 12. In Colossians it says, Inasmuch as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. So you have to receive Christ. But you say, now how do you do that? How do you receive Christ? And so I want to take you back to the book of Acts. The question, what must I do to be saved, is asked three different times in the book of Acts. It's asked in Acts 2, verse 37. You remember in verse 36, that Peter reaches the climax of his sermon on the day of Pentecost. He said, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So that was the question. Men and brethren, what shall we do? In the book of Acts chapter 9, Saul is on the road to Damascus. He's on his way into the city where he's been given letters that given him the authority to arrest Christians. And on the road into Damascus, the great light shines around about him. He falls to his knees. He cries out, Who art thou, Lord? And the answer is, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. You know what he said? Lord, what will you have me to do? He's asking the question. What must I do to be saved, Lord? What would you have me to do? And then you turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, this time chapter 16. Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi. It's midnight. There's a great earthquake. And the uh, jailer, thinking all of his prisoners have escaped, about to kill himself. And Paul cries out, do yourself no harm, we're all here. He called for a light and he sprang in, trembling, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Three times the question is asked. Now do you realize that every time that question is asked, a different answer is given? On the day of Pentecost, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were told, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 9, verse 6, Lord, what will you have me to do? And the answer is, go into Damascus, and there it will be told you what you must do. A lot of our religious friends say, you know, Saul was saved on the Damascus Road. Folks, he didn't even get his answer on the Damascus Road. He was told to go into the city, and there it will be told you what you must do. And so the Bible teaches us, as Paul relates his own conversion, Acts 22, that he spent three days in fasting and prayer. He was joined by a preacher named Ananias who uh, talked to him about what God wanted him to do. And he said, now, in verse 16, And now why tarriest thou, arise, and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So he got a different answer. And then if you go to Acts 16, verse 31, he said, Sirs, what must I do? 
uh, verse 30, and then in verse 31, the answer was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved in your house. So somebody says, you know what, I don't understand. You got the same question, three different answers. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. What time is it? Uh, this is the only time I give you a right to look at your clock, okay? It is, uh, according to my watch, 7.15. If I were to ask you five minutes from now, I were to say, what time is it? Now, because your preacher's brilliant, I would say, Spencer, what time is it five minutes now, from now? 7.20. Smart. If I were to ask it five minutes later, and I say, what time is it? The answer would be 7.25. One more time, five minutes later, what time is it? 7.30. I ask the same question. I've got three different answers, and the reason is simple. Time marches on. If you get on a, an elevator that, let's say, it has 20 floors to the top, you might start out and you say, how far to the top? Somebody says it's 12 floors. A minute later, how far to the top? Well, there are eight floors. Just another short time, how far to the top? And you get a different answer. Why three different answers to the same question? Because the elevator's moving on. Now then, I tell you that to tell you this. Every man or person who asked the question, what must I do to be saved, was in a different place spiritually when he asked the question than the other person. So let's go back to the day of Pentecost. These folks had heard a gospel sermon. They had become convinced that they had crucified the Son of the living God. They had become believers that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, Peter had said, you have taken by wicked hands, you have crucified and slain. And they were pricked in their hearts. They were believers. So what do you say to a believer who wants to know what must I do to be saved? You tell him to repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now if you go to uh, Acts 16, the Philippian jailer is a heathen. He doesn't know about Jesus. All he knows is that Paul and Silas are unusual. Uh, they've been singing instead of cursing. Uh, they're praying, and uh, when they could have escaped, they're all still there. So he calls for a light, springs in, falls at their feet. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved in your house. Now, folks, how can you believe something you've never heard? You remember Romans 10, 13 says, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How shall they call on him in whom they've not uh, heard, believed, uh, heard? How shall they believe on him in whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? This man is a heathen. He's never heard. So when they say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't know who he is. And so guess what the next thing is? It says Paul and Silas preached to him. That's the way faith comes. Romans 10, 17 Faith comes by hearing, and so they preach to him. Somebody says, all you have to do to go to heaven is just believe. There's the example of it, believe. This man couldn't believe, he didn't even know who he was. And so they preach to him, and faith comes by hearing. And then the Bible says, he took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes. You know what he's doing? He's repenting. He's sorry for what's happened to these people. And then the Bible says, he was baptized straightway or immediately, he and all his house. So if you come into this room tonight, 
You don't know who Jesus is. I would tell you he's the Christ, the Son of God. He died for your sins. He arose the third day. He's now reigning at the right hand of the Father. He'll come back someday and take you home with him if you're a child of his. And so you come to believe. Then you say, Wayne, I believe in Jesus. What do I need to do? I'd say repent and be baptized. That's what you need to do. Now, let's go back to Acts 9. On the road to Damascus, Paul, at that time Saul of Tarsus, said, Lord, what would you have me to do? And the answer is, go into Damascus, and there you'll be told what to do. And for the next three days, you know what? He's a believer, folks. He becomes a believer on the Damascus road. He's not saved yet, but he is a believer. And for the next three days, he's in fasting and prayer. He's repenting of his sins. And so when the preacher comes to this believer who has already been repenting of his sins, what does he say to him? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. So each person was in a different place. The Philippian jailer was a totally unbeliever, so he was told to believe. He repented. He was baptized. On the day of Pentecost, believers were told, repent and be baptized. Saul of Tarsus, who was now a penitent believer, was simply told to be baptized. So what must I do to be saved? Depends on where you are tonight. If you walked into this room and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've never repented of your sins or been immersed for the forgiveness of sins, I would say to you, why tarriest thou? Arise, walk down one of these aisles when we sing the imitation song, repent of your sins and be baptized. But if you came in here already as a penitent believer and you say, what must I do? I'm sorry for my sins, I would say, arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Folks, I don't know how to make it any plainer than that. I believe in the day of judgment, you'll never be able to turn your face to God and say, but Lord, I didn't know. I was taught so many different things by so many different people, and I was just so confused, I didn't know what to do. I have told you from Scripture what you need to do. And so in just a moment now, we're going to sing an invitation song, and as we're singing that song, you're going to be given an opportunity to make a choice. You might say to me tonight, Wayne, I didn't come here to make a decision. I came to here, but I'm not going to make a choice tonight. Yes, you are. It's impossible not to. Every time the gospel is preached, you have to make a choice. You'll either choose to do what God tells you to do, or you choose not to. You choose to make Jesus Christ Lord of your life, or you choose to keep living for yourself. But you make a choice every single time. Let me ask you this. Are you willing to live with that choice? Willing to die with that choice? You willing to face God in the day of judgment with that choice? Remember how much he loves you. Remember how the simple, simple plan of salvation is. So simple you can understand it and you can do it. Uh, Why would we argue about it? Why would we want to make a fuss about what God wants us to do? He's tried to make it so simple for us. And so I'm urging you, if you've never been baptized into Christ tonight as a penitent believer, please come. Let us baptize you tonight. If you're already a Christian, though, you're not living right, you've stepped out on God, you've been unfaithful, you've gone after the world, come home tonight. We'll pray for you. And God will forgive you. You walk out of here knowing you're right in His sight. While we stand to sing, will you come? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power 